Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. My name's Jack and I'm an alcoholic. And you really are doubly blessed this morning to have standing before you the two greatest criers in all of Alcoholics Anonymous. Lee, there are a few of the Alamines that think that, you know, that they share that title, but they really don't. <laughs> you and me. First of all, they never really felt as sorry for us for themselves as, as we did, and besides, they didn't have as much practice because they didn't stay up all night doing it. <laughs> like we did for a long time. Just to prove to you that I, I really am in Lee's category, in his league, not long ago, I was walking out of a drugstore and saw a Milky Way. And, you know, impulse buying, I bought a Milky Way and walked across the street to get in my car. And I was unwrapping that Milky Way, and I had my car in gear, and I was just about to pull away from the curb. And I took a bite of that Milky Way, and it tasted so good that I just had to sit there and cry about it. <laughs> And just lots of times, I'll be driving down the road in my automobile, listening to music, and I just, I just have to cry about it, because it, it's so good. You know, it really is so good to feel good, and I, I think that that's what this is all about. It's about how to get so comfortable inside yourself that you, that you feel so good that you just can't hardly stand it. I've sat at Serenity Point at Whitney watching the sunset, just sitting there with tears running down my cheeks, just crying, feeling good, alive. On page 132 of the book, it says we absolutely insist on enjoying life. We're sure God wants us to be happy and joyous and free. We can't subscribe to the belief that this life is a veil of tears. Now, Lee and I, you know, we... Get a few going, but it's because we feel so good. <coughs> though, it, though it once was just that for many of us. But it's clear that we made our own misery. God didn't do it. Avoid, then, the deliberate manufacture of misery. But if trouble comes, cheerfully capitalize it as an opportunity to demonstrate God's omnipotence. It's good to be here. It's good to be alive and to know it. It's good to look out that window and see a beautiful day. When I got up, you could see the sky, and now it's a little overcast, but nothing has changed. I was talking to a friend of mine in Dallas before I came up here and telling me I was coming up to Kansas, and he said, you sure have to watch that country. He said, a couple of years ago, I was driving through there, and the snow was, the wind was blowing, and the snow was coming down, and you could just hardly see, and I pulled into a service station to get some gasoline, and, and I said to the attendant, boy, this weather sure is something. And he said, it really is. He said, you know, in this country, we only have 
35 perfect days of weather a year, and this is one of them. <laughs> so, Joyce, if we get snowed in here, it, you know, it's just just one of them. Because always in the past, we thought that perfection, that happiness, that joy, that that whatever it was that we were seeking was, was going to come to us from the outside. It was going to be by an arrangement of circumstances or thing. If we could get everything fixed just right, including the weather, then we'd just rear back and just be real happy and enjoy ourselves, enjoy life. <clears throat> and we see this happening in the world today, you know, about us. And it's a very peculiar thing that no one seems to be getting the message that, that that's not the way to do it, that it never works. Uh, if it had worked, we wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be sitting here. If we could find what we were looking for by the proper, in our case, perfect, rearrangement of external things, We wouldn't be here. We would have fixed it. We would have been living happily ever after. Because in your life and mine, and this is just as true for the non-alcoholic who is sitting here as it is for the alcoholic. You know, we alcoholics are the ones who have some sort of a self-righteous attitude that, that we've got to lock on everything. We've got to lock on, on being human. And it isn't so. Putting the drinking problem aside, I can't tell any difference. We're people. We've got a problem of being alive, of waking up in the morning and knowing what to do about it, of finding the real answers to the real problems, real problems such as combing your hair and going out there and, and facing the situation that exists in your life, the perfectly normal and natural situation of being alive. And you Alanons found the answer. You found the perfect answer. You're going to marry him when he came along and he was going to make you happy. You're going to live happily ever after with him. Hmm? In him would be all answers to all things. Something about like that, you know, Take that fourth step and go back and look at it and you'll be coming pretty close. You found in him what we found in the bottle, an answer, a solution, the way out. Boy, the way into this, what was this but an external arrangement, looking without, looking out there to begin to find what our hearts always hungered for. But we just, in our ignorance, just did not know which direction to take. I knew what I was looking for because I felt it from time to time. I knew when I was a child what feeling good was and freedom from fear was. I knew it when I was a very small child, and, and then I lost it. And every one of you here experienced it, and you lost it. Now perhaps we're returning to it, and maybe this is what the other big book means when it says 
that except as ye become as a little child, except as ye become as a little child, and and to a little child, you'll notice that there is one, well, many, but one particular outstanding quality that a child has that you and I have lost, but in Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon we recapture it. And that is that everything is important to a child. A child picks up a rock and, and, and it becomes an experience. A simple rock becomes an experience. Or a dog casing, chasing a cat. They're awake and alive. They're not figuring out everything. They're just looking at it. They're becoming aware of it. They live within the moment and the experience of the moment. And they trust. They, they just trust. They have faith that everything's going to be all right. And then we teach them that everything isn't going to be all right. Don't we? Here we take this beautiful type of sponsorship called parenthood. And we begin to teach these kids very early how to suffer and how to believe that everything isn't going to be all right. And we do this by the way we wake up in the morning and the attitudes that we carry to the breakfast table and the conversations. And go sit in a pediatrician's office, if you will, and I, this is not what I got up here to say. <laughs> And listen to Johnny's mother talking to little Mary's mother. And here's little Mary and Johnny. And Johnny's got the croup. But Mary's condition is worse and more permanent than the croup, according to Mary's mother. And they're talking about how sick these little kids are and how, you know, just terrible. <clears throat> they're creating an atmosphere just in this one way, but projecting it in so many ways cause us to believe that there's so much to fear. And then the attitude that people act out of resentment, of apprehension, and the belief that there is either no God or the kind of God that punishes. Well, you know, you know the picture because you've experienced it in your own life. And the ideas that come with this, that we grow up with and take as our own, although they never were our own, See, when you were a child, these ideas were not natural to you. You didn't believe them until you became educated by them. And in AA, we've got a line that says that the result is nil until we let go of our old ideas. And it's not just our old ideas about booze. In my case, it was my old idea about everything. I had to go back and re-examine what I thought and what I believed about everything in life. Most beginning with me and continuing with me and coming back to me. But I had to begin to rediscover what trees and people and rocks and dogs and cats and love and God and sex and everything else on earth was because I did not know and yet I thought I knew everything. I thought I knew. I was filled with, I was a reservoir of the most useless and valueless and destructive information that you've ever seen in your life until you take your own fourth and fifth step and then you'll see the same bag of garbage that I had, a slightly different arrangement of it. 
but the same bag of garbage. And you know, we, when we read that line that says, let go of our old ideas, we think, well, this means our bad old ideas. Did you ever figure out what your bad old ideas were? The best things that ever happened to me were the worst. I got here by virtue of the worst things that ever happened to me. Now, this is the greatest thing that ever happened to me. So the things that got me here that led me to the greatest thing that ever happened to me were the best things that ever happened to me, weren't they? I wouldn't change one thing that ever happened to me because if I did, I would probably disappear. And you'd say, where'd that speaker go? <laughs> because it took it all. My good ideas, you know, those marvelous things that I was going to do and to accomplish, those wonderful intellectual thoughts that just lifted me up above mortal human beings <laughs> just about killed me. The, my, my best ideas were what almost kept me from missing this program. So do you think I know very much about what's good and bad? I had to become entirely willing to let go of all of my old ideas and to, be, and to re-examine and I still do. And I do. And that's what this program, that's one of the meanings of this program in my life. It's continuing to learn. And the greatest part of learning for me has been unlearning. You know, we have some kind of a notion that we can take new information and, and, and put it on over the top, that we can just inform ourselves and keep on informing ourselves and just inform ourselves to death, really. But I have to begin to let go of the old ideas that are really in conflict with the new ideas. And one of the ideas that I had to let go of was this idea of suffering. I believed in suffering, and we all did. Now, I didn't know I believed in suffering, but I suffered about as beautifully as anybody you've ever seen, sometimes all night long. And I wrote poetry while I suffered. <laughs> and it was beautiful poetry when I wrote it. I remember one morning, or one late that day, I had not had too much to drink that day, and I read some of that poetry. And I have never written any poetry since. <laughs> I got a real good look at, at that. But at heart, I really am a poet. Someday, sober, I'm going to sit down and write a poem, I think, about feeling good, because it's good, and it's all about being a part of good, not set apart from it, but about this experience, this journey. It's not a destination, it's a journey, a beginning to experience in one's own inner life and then reflecting it in the lives of others, the message that God is good and that there is peace and hope and joy and beauty and love. And as Jack read to you from the last words, chapter 11 in the big book, you can't give what you don't have. You can't give it away. And the message that we carry to a drunk is not that he's a drunk. He knows he's a drunk, and if he doesn't know he's a drunk yet, then you no need to go. If he's not aware that he's a drunk, 
but he's got a real problem. There's no need to be there. You know, he's not ready to hear the message. He knows about feeling bad. But the real message is that it's possible not to be that way. But how can we carry this message if we don't have it, if it isn't an experience? And Alcoholics Anonymous is an experience. But it's a new kind of experience based on a new, a brand new set of ideas about 10,000 years old. Actually, as old as the universe is old. But they're new like a, like a car. Suppose that someone 35 years ago bought an automobile and put it in the garage. You know, they just drove it from the showroom to their garage and never moved it. It wouldn't be new, it would be unused, wouldn't it? So we don't have a new program, we've got an unused one. It's one that has not been used. And the whole idea is for me to use it, to begin to utilize it, to begin to believe in it, to begin to experience it, and the promises, the fulfillment of it in my life. And... I really can't do this until I can begin to see, and I couldn't until I, until I did see, that this is a new language. It's the language of the heart. It's the language of the spirit. And it's about principles and ideas that are separate and apart from the language of the problem. You know, what you hear today, well, a lot of it will, will be how I feel and how I think, and much of it will be my my experience with with the program, with the result. It's my opinion that one of the mistakes that people like me continue to make is continuing to speak the language of the problem exclusively, not learning the language of the answer, not knowing that they're really two separate and distinct things. We think that our disease is our common denominator. Do you ever think that? That the thing that, that identifies all of us is our disease. And yet this isn't true. If that's all we had as, I, as identity, I seriously doubt if most of us would be here. We would all agree, yeah, maybe not all, but some of us who were as sick as I became would say, yes, I've, I've got that terrible problem. But our common denominator is the solution. And on page 17, it, you know, it says that to me. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. Not just a common problem or disease called alcoholism, which will kill you. You know, if, if you don't believe that alcoholism will kill you, just... Keep on drinking and be patient. And, <laughs> and some very strange and peculiar things will take place in your life that will be totally unexpected, except by everybody in the community who will be, you know, a spectator to this thing that's happening. We make such a big to-do about saying, I'm Jack B. I don't say I'm Jack B. I'm Jack Bowen except at the level of the press and radio and television and films, and I don't have too much trouble with them. <laughs> but the super anonymity that we have, and tell me, have you ever in your life seen one anonymous drunk? 
he's the last one that ever discovers it. And then after he discovers it, he tries to go around and pretend that it really isn't so, that they didn't know that I was. The people across the street and down the street and, you know, back behind. By the time we get here, there's no anonymity about this. Not really. Something has been happening. And it has become obvious. It, is, it has become a fact that we have given to the world. <laughs> you know, we let them in on something. All the while that we were trying to, to keep them out. But this way out, on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. And I am attracted to you not by how much you drank and where you drank it and how dirty your clothes got, although I want to know something about that. But this does not arouse in me any great desire to be like that, because I was like that. I want what you have now. I want what you are becoming. I want this new experience of yours. And I want you to share your experience with the program, with me, with these steps, and the strength and the hope and the joy that comes from it. And we can be in here for 20 years and have no joy and say that all this thing promises is to keep us dry. Or we can be in here two weeks and be filled with something. This happened last week to me in Dallas. I, I talked on Wednesday night and uh, a fellow came up to me and he said, you know, I almost didn't come tonight. I was, I was so tired. I had to work a double shift last night and I was up all night. And he said, I've been in Alcoholics Anonymous two weeks and have gone to meetings almost every night since then. And he said, about two o'clock in the morning, and he's the desk clerk at a Holiday Inn. He said, a fellow came in and, and, and we had, he was late. We had goofed up on his reservation and he was tired and he was standing there just raising cane. And he said, since I've been in AA, I have learned how to handle people differently. And he said, I, I, I was, you know, and this was a timid little Casper milk toast one of us. And he said, I was, you know, trying to be nice to him and, and I, I checked around and, and, and I managed to get him a room nearby. And he said, he'd been there about 15 minutes and he turned to me and he said, you must be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And this man said, I was absolutely astonished. And you know, I, how could he possibly have guessed? And this fellow, and he asked this man how he knew and he said, well, he said, I can tell by the way you act. He said, I ought to be, but I'm not. This man's two weeks sober, and he's practicing these principles where he works, and it's obvious. He's got something that I want more of. Man, I want to hear him talk next Wednesday night. <laughs> because he's carrying the message of what this is all about, if that... It's not just a deal that we stay sober, but that our lives are changing. We're powerless and that we don't like the old way. I can bring that old way over into this new way and louse it up. I can carry with me the ideas and the attitudes. I can drag with me 
those things out of the past, just like an old dead cat. Have you ever seen any one of us just drag along some of these things and keep on dragging them? You keep dragging an old dead cat around long enough, and the first thing you know, you and that dead cat are going to be standing over in the corner by yourself <laughs> because it's going to start smelling pretty bad. <laughs> this is what these steps will show us, that how to let go of some of these things, how to let go of some of these beautiful things that we've suffered with, how to become willing to give up such things as anger, resentment, depression, how to become willing to stop being depressed. And I can talk about depression. It's been a long time since I've experienced one. It's been a long time since I've lost my temper. But I'm a former expert on depression. I'm one of the champions in that department. But it wasn't until I got sick and tired of it and became willing to go to any lengths to stop feeling bad. When I first came in AA, I thought, and somebody told me, and I've told a lot of people since, I, there's one lie that I will tell. The others I tell then have to go back and say I lied. You know, because it's still, my liar still sometimes, you know, sneaks up behind. <laughs> but I can catch it most of the time. But there's one that I'll tell a, an old guy if I'm sitting on the side of his bed. I'll tell him. If you'll just stop drinking, everything's going to be all right. <laughs> then later we'll get that worked out, you know. I'll, I'll say a lie. Because it ain't going to be all right just because you stop drinking. No. And it's not going to be all right for you, Alanis, because he stops drinking. Because he never was your problem. He really wasn't. It looks like it. But if he was your problem, then tell me, if you were doing so pretty good, why did you choose him in the first place? <laughs> there was a choice. A series of choices. So as Bob said, how did we get here except through a series of choices based on ignorance, not knowing, that kind of ignorance, not knowing. The simple act of not knowing and thinking that we know and we've all suffered and still do from this. My life, I was born and bred. Like Peter Rabbit, he was in the briar patch. And I was born and bred in alcoholism. And it raised me. And it orphaned me when I was six years old. And twice in my life I've been ten years old. I was ten years old when I was ten years old, and then I was ten years old in Alcoholics Anonymous. 1963, uh, I was ten years old. I've had two birthdays. Let me tell you about those two birthdays, and I could quit when I tell you about them, because that'll be my story. On my tenth birthday, my parents had been gone for a little more than three years, alcoholism. <laughs> and when they died, I found out when I took my fourth step, when I was 29, that when they died, I really was glad. 
suited me pretty good because all that suffering, all that hell raising, you know, was going to go with them, except it didn't. My grandmother, who was a teetotaler, and she'd run her son and her brother and others away from her house because they drank. And my grandmother, at the time of the trauma of this experience of death, took a drink, and she was close to 50, perhaps, and she was an instant alcoholic. And one of the freewheelingest alcoholics, this little old beautiful white-headed lady, became one of the most roaring drunks that you've ever seen in your life. And, and, and that was my security. This was in the beginning of the Depression. When I was 10 years of age, I sat on the backyard on my birthday, the dusty backyard. There was no grass in it. And the, it sloped down to the railroad tracks. And I was sitting about as far from the first track in the yards of the Norfolk and Western Railway in Roanoke, Virginia, as from here to that window, a little bit farther perhaps, not much more, right? The railroad track was in the backyard. And it was late in the afternoon, and there was, had been, there was no birthday cake around that house. There was no electricity. The lights were cut off. A telephone was, you know, we had not had one of those for a long time. The people inside were drinking and drunk, the grown-ups. The only thing for sure about living there was that we were going to move, probably next week, because we were always moving next week. Even when we moved in, we were moving next week. And the hopelessness of life and the idea that I was nothing was already upon me. Now, I've talked to a lot of people who have come from the other end of the spectrum of the dichotomy from me. And you know, they had the idea that they were nothing too. Our circumstances may have differed differed on the outside, but isn't it rather startling how that on the inside the same things began to shape up? But here I sat in that backyard aware of my nothingness and the hopelessness of life was already upon me, although I couldn't verbalize it. And late in the afternoon, sitting there, a train passed, a passenger train. And back in those days, passenger service was much larger part of railroading than it is today. And I was about nine blocks from the station downtown in Roanoke, and the train was just leaving town, going west. Just about sunset, lights were turning on. As this train passed, many, many cars, and on the end of it, there were two dining cars together. I can see it like I can see you. And incidentally, you're beautiful. I sat there and I watched people taking their seats and, and families and maybe I saw a child or two on this train. And I desperately wanted out of where I was. I wanted to be on that train, to be, to be out of the situation in life. And I could imagine that there were people on that train that loved little boys. And I didn't know anything about love. To ride a train was a dream that was beyond any expectancy that I would have. And this, I, I can feel now the urgency 
for something better, to be taken away, lifted up out of the experience of life. And the train was passing, and then the dining car, and I can still see the stewards in their white jackets, and the people were sitting there. And the feeling that I have of wanting to belong to something, to belong to someone, to know that which was good and lovely and beautiful and orderly, and to be able to be proud of one thing in my life. And I was proud of nothing, no one. There was nothing, there was no sanity or order, nothing to give peace and security. And this train passed, and I settled back down into where I was, the hopelessness that was already upon me. <coughs> now, I had forgotten this story until I took my tenth, my fourth step. I lived in a beautiful little dream world, you know, and told lies about how my life had been and the things that happened to me until I really got into program of recovery. And I began to see this, and then some things happened to me, and now on my 10th AA birthday, I do what I do at least twice a year. I take I take the steps in, at depth, and I was redoing my fourth step, not to go back and suffer. Don't suffer when you go back and look at yourself. You know, this program is not to suffer with. Not to feel guilty about. It's to relieve ourselves, to become separated, to clear away the wreckage of the past. And the only wreckage of the past that you can find is in your consciousness, that's in your mind. A few things left out there, but to clear it out of ourselves. So I was taking, at this time, just prior to my 10th AA birthday, a re-inventory. Getting ready for my 10th birthday. And the president of the company that I worked for had an invitation to take a, a, a vice president of the Norfolk and Western Railway to take a trip that was annually given to some of the businessmen who had been of service in the community. And I was invited to go with him. And we were to leave on a train, a special train, with some of the dignitaries in that area and with the railroad that was to leave late in the afternoon. And we got out of the station late in the afternoon, and Bud and I were the, about the two last ones to get on the train, and we knew this vice president pretty well. He had a brother who was an alcoholic who died from his alcoholism, and we had tried to work with this man. And we got on the train, and one of the porters came up and said, what will you fellas have to drink? And the vice president said, they'll have coffee, John. You know, in recognition that, you know, that we're Alcoholics Anonymous. So we had some coffee and said a few words, and it was about time for the train to leave. And I was shown into the, there were two special cars. And in the center of each car, there was a dining room table. And as the train was just getting ready to pull away, I was shown into the other car, and I was given a seat, and the train then, uh, you could feel the jerk, and it began to move, and there were uh, some fellows in that room that I had not met, and there were the introductions going around. And I was about to take my seat, and suddenly I looked up, and I looked out the window, 
And I was up at about 7th Street and Shenandoah Avenue in Roanoke. And I remembered again the story when I was 10 years old, sitting in the dirt in that backyard, surrounded by alcoholism, disorder, confusion, and shame. And how as a boy, I had, my heart had prayed, not in words, but I had prayed to be lifted out of it. Now you think about this for a moment. On my 10th AA birthday, through no choice of my own, through no act of my own, I find myself on a train <clears throat> late in the afternoon, heading west, positioned in such a way that I could look out, and suddenly my mind is pricked with this memory that was as vivid again as your faces are. And then it was 8th Street. And then I could look out and I saw the very spot on which I sat when I was 10 years of age, wanting to be out of alcoholism and shame and wanting to have a family. And I stood there with businessmen from the community looking on and the tears were running down my cheeks. You know, I'm one of the great criers in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because everything that I wanted when I was a child and needed had come to pass. I had a family. And you're my family, my real family. Those of us who think in the same way and who have the same common denominator that we call the, this program, which is really God, Is that a coincidence? You know, how could this come to pass? Except that, that Jack read to you, marvelous things will happen. The first marvelous thing is just relief from having to take a drink. That's the first and primary. Primary because it is of the first order. But it's not the only. And there are other of equal importance and of significance. The changed inner life that has to be, take place in us. Between those two birthdays, the first and the tenth birthday and the second tenth birthday, many things happened. And I'm not going to take the time to go into all the details of, <clears throat> of what it took to defeat me. But it took a lot, just like it took with you. It took exactly what it took to get me to the point where I could see. I never was in jail. But I wanted to be before the end. I was working at it pretty good, and if I could have just held out a little longer, I'd have made it. <laughs> the night before I called Joe, the, re the reason I called Joe was that two weeks before this, I had seen Joe. I'd walked around a corner in Roanoke. I remember standing on the street at the post office, and I tried to go across the street. Now, I wasn't drunk. I never got drunk. I got high or tight or something. You know, I didn't know what getting drunk was until after I got sober. It reminds me of the first cartoon I saw after I came in AA, and it showed a, a, a a wife, obviously, talking to Lawyer Blatz. You know, he had his door open and his name was on the door and she was sitting there and she was just furious. 
and she wanted that divorce right now. And she said, and you know, I didn't even know he drank until he came home sober one night. <laughs> well, that's the way I was. I didn't know I drank until I got sober. <laughs> In those periods of time when I really wasn't drinking, you know, when I really was laying off the stuff, the, the boss was coming to town or, or there's some stress or some pressure thing, I only drank, oh, 10 or 12 Red Top Ales that day. Snuck a few drinks, you know, in addition to that. When I quit in those periods, I was drinking more than most people who don't drink, you know, ever get to drink. So I didn't know what drinking was. I really didn't know what anything was, not really. I didn't know what God was. I didn't know what I was. I didn't know who I was. And that's the problem. I didn't know who I was. And the solution that we have here, there is a solution. I'm looking at it. Chapter 2 is to begin to discover who we are. But I'll never discover who I am if I keep on acting like who I was. How can I? If I keep on acting like who I was, how am I going to discover who I really am? So can you see that for me that there were many, 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 many choices and continued to be choices of deciding how to not be? I had to decide that I didn't want to be drunk, and no one could decide that for me. And the only thing that allowed me to decide it was the experience of being drunk, the suffering that came. And one day at night, as I said, I stood on the corner trying to get across the street, and I wasn't drunk. I just couldn't go forward because I had reached the point that there was no place for me to go. I was living in a, a one-bedroom on the worst side of town. Two years before this, when I stood in some stature, I thought, in the community, <coughs> I had a couple of automobiles and placed to park them. In an equity in a house that was my house, it belonged to the bank, but mine, everything was mine. My children, I loved them. I didn't love them. I owned them. I possessed them. I didn't know what love was. Had no concept of what love was. But two years before this night, when I had just walked down the street from where I lived, a neighbor, my next door neighbor had seen me over in that part of town one day, and he said, Jack, I saw you downtown today. And I said, oh, you did? Where? And he said, over on Day Avenue. And I and I said, no, you, you couldn't have seen me on Day Avenue. I wasn't there. See, I wasn't there. Now, I was there, but I wasn't there when he saw me, and I lied about it. And he said, well, I'm sure I saw you there. And I said, well, I'm sure I wasn't. I was in Martinsville. Well, I was there, but I didn't want to be seen there because that wasn't a place for me to be seen. Two years later, I lived there. <laughs> and they had told me that I had to move from there. <laughs> Are you beginning to get the message? And... If you haven't, you know, just keep sucking on that flip and be patient, and you'll be there. But there's a way not to be there. And 
There was a little fellow named Joe that was quite a salesman. He was a real crackerjack sort of guy. One of the most amazing men I've ever known in my life. It's the same Joe Jack that... Yeah, yeah, you, that Joe. <clears throat> a very remarkable person. Even when he was drunk, he was a very remarkable person. He lost playing poker in the most remarkable way. And I used to love to play poker with Joe. One time I won the shotgun that the governor of West Virginia had given his father. It didn't belong to Joe. It belonged to his father. But Joe needed something to put up in the poker game, and he put up his father's shotgun. And I won it. And this shotgun was worth many hundreds of dollars. It was a beautiful piece. And I won it, and then the next day he didn't want to pay off, and I went over and I took my gun away from Joe. Now, a couple years later, I sold our gun, <laughs> worth many hundreds of dollars for 20 bucks to buy some booze. But during this period of time, you know how we always pick out a few things and a few people that prove to us that we're not like they are, that we really don't have this problem. If we ever get like they do, we'll quit. And I used to stand and, you know, and, and talk to some of the other fellows like me about Joe. And I put, Joe was just about the size, and I put him on my shoulder and carry him home to Jean. And Jean and I would agree that she had a terrible problem with Joe. And if I ever got like Joe was, I quit. But what I couldn't see was that every time I got as bad as Joe was, he'd gotten worse. And we just kept going like this. If I ever get as bad as Joe is, I'll quit. But I never could. And one night, you know, I couldn't get across the street because there wasn't any place for me to go. I couldn't go forward, and this was back. And I couldn't go back. And I couldn't go sideways. And the light turned green and red and green and red, and I stood there. There was no place for me. I'd been to California to find the answer. I'd given up everything looking for the answer. And there wasn't any answer. I'd even tried suicide in California, and that had failed. But I was still holding that in reserve. That seemed to be the only way out. You know, some of us really take that way out, and I think maybe I might have. Because there was no hope for me or anybody else. There just wasn't. It was a hopeless situation. And I spent a lot of time in the park watching squirrels and wishing I was one. Truth. I used to watch them run up and down those trees chasing each other. And, you know, people feeding them peanuts. And they didn't have to do anything except, you know, sleep in those holes and no responsibility. And, you know, just to be a squirrel would have been just the greatest thing. I, you know, sat there and just wanted to be a squirrel. <laughs> There was no place for me. I wanted to be in jail. I wanted to be taken out of it. I wanted to be dead, except I didn't want to die. <laughs> you know, between being alive and being dead, there's about that much space, it always seemed to me. You know, you got to go through something. And it was that something that always backed me off. <laughs> 
I couldn't go forward and I couldn't go backward. And I walked, I finally did, and I walked around the corner, and there was Joe. If I ever got as bad as Joe is, I'll quit. And he was standing outside a doorway, and there were some people talking to him. And he came across the street to where I was, and I said, let's go get a beer. I knew he was going to pay for it. And we did, except he wouldn't drink. First time I'd ever seen Joe when he wouldn't drink. And I noticed that on that door, there were two letters, AA. And when I first saw this, I, I knew that Joe wasn't weak enough to, you know, he was just passing by like I was. He wouldn't be weak enough to be a part of that. But he wouldn't drink with me, and I kept, you know, trying to talk him into it. And he bought me several beers, and he drank coffee. And for two weeks, I kept thinking about this. And finally, one day, and I had come into my own again. I don't know where I got the money. To this day, I can't remember where I got the money. I may have stolen it. I don't know. But I was staying downtown in the Ponce de Leon Hotel. That's a pretty good hotel there. And I had run into some friends. Now, I had never met them before, but they were friends, and we were in a poker game. And one of them tried to cheat me, and I, I caught him trying to cheat. And so I just did what we do. I just got up and hit him. And just <laughs> knocked him across the bed, and his head hit... Uh, the corner of the dresser, and there was blood all over the place, and he ran out of the room, and we, I sat back down, you know, just wanting to get the poker game started again, because we'd solved that problem. <laughs> and a few minutes later, the assistant manager and two policemen came in, and, and uh, uh, he said, that's the one that did it. That's the one. And so the officer said, well, please come with us. Now, to prove to you that I never got drunk, that drinking wasn't my problem, see, I very calmly said, yes, officer, what, what's the trouble here? And they said, well, you, you know, look at this man. Come go with us. And so while I was dressing myself, I proceeded to very calmly and intelligently explain to the officers what had happened, how this man had intruded on our private party, and that we were just having a little fun. And do you know what happened? We looked out the window and watched them carry him over, put him in jail, and I sat back down to play poker. The next day I awakened, and my other friends, and my money, and my booze, and everything was gone, and my sanity was gone again, and there was no way out, and I remembered Joe. <laughs> And I was ready to jump out of the window, and I remembered Joe, and I called him, and I said, Joe, are you still sober? And he said, yes, I'm still sober. I said, Joe, I can't get sober. And I said these magic words. And I had heard myself say these words six weeks before that for the first time in my life. But I walked in a room, and someone that understood me got up and left. The last person on earth that I knew understood me walked out of a room when I walked in it. And I heard myself say, there must be something wrong with me. And I said those words to Joe, there must be something wrong with me. I don't know what it was, but there must be something. And he said, where are you? And I told him, and he and another fellow came. And he, when the, the night that I first saw Joe, he had been in AA for two weeks. 
perfect timing. He was standing at the right place at the right time when I walked around the corner. He wasn't upstairs and he had not gotten into his automobile to leave. He was standing where I needed him. <clears throat> and somebody was standing where you needed them or you wouldn't be here except you didn't know it and they didn't know it. God's been speaking to us for a long time in a lot of different ways. And we keep trying to receive a telegram signed G-O-D. So the message keeps coming and the timing is there. And we keep wondering, you know, where God is when all the while behind the ordinary, everyday, and life-saving events and circumstances, there's a higher intelligence and a larger consciousness of love that's at work in each of our lives. And one of the great secrets of this program is to give up our sickness because our sickness will not see it. Our sickness does not want to get well. It wants us to go over and over with the sickness. And it's, yes, I must label my sickness. I must know how sick I was and am. And I am not recovered. I'm recovered. <coughs> but the emphasis, the primary emphasis today is on beginning to understand the language and the experience of the solution. To begin to see this larger, intelligent, creative intelligence of the universe that the book refers to it. I can call it God today. It worked. And it's there. But the more I can see it at work, the more I can see it at work. And it isn't a judging, condemning God that limits us and made us this way. No. It was never its will for me to take that first drink, and, and drinking wasn't my only problem. You know, we sometimes you hear us say, I drank and I drank and I drank and I drank, and then I drank some more, and then I really started drinking. And then after I really started drinking, that's when I really got with the drinking, and that was my problem. But look at all those other things that we acquired. Look at all those other states of mind and obsession. Look at all of the other destructive, negative, emotional acts. I look back over my life and I'm appalled at the path of destruction that I wrought, at how I shot people out of the saddle by word and by thought. And you know, we think that we can do something in our minds and that it's all right to do it. You know, we, as long as we smile, you know, and hate their guts while you smile. <laughs> you ever do that? Just don't put it on them out there. It won't work. It will destroy me if I do it, because that's where all of my life came from. It came right out of me. I wondered where my mess came from. And I wondered what, by what law, by what reason, by what manner. But I came to the point where I could only expect to experience hopelessness and destruction and the acts and the experiences that from which I suffered so greatly. <clears throat> and one day after I was sober, I began to see, I began to understand some things, and I'm still continuing to understand. And maybe a, a poem 
I told you I was a poet at heart. But a poem that I read one time in a marvelous little book, little book by Allen, As a Man Thinketh. Great book. If you have it, pick it up sometime. It'll come into your hand and read it. And the poem in the beginning of this book says, My, the master power that molds and makes, and man is mine. And evermore he takes the tools of thought and shaping what he wills brings forth a thousand joys or a thousand ills. He thinks in secret, but it comes to pass. Environment is but his looking glass. Oh, what a message that had to me. After I was sober. But yes, I had to stay sober. But then I had to do a complete house cleaning. And then I had to, you know, the willingness to not take another drink forever. And this is what the book tells me. I had to become willing to stop drinking forever. But it says, does not say anywhere in this program that the program is that I don't drink a day at a time. What it really says is that what we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. A daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. If I had the power to not drink now, would I not have not had the power to not drink before I came into Alcoholics Anonymous? It'd be the same power. I was powerless over alcohol then and I'm powerless over alcohol now. Then if I try to stay sober a day at a time, and that's the message that we sometimes get, I'll never make it. I'll make it a day at a time, and then one day I won't be able to grind out another day. Because I will have not seen what the real, what we really have. It's a daily reprieve, contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition, and that to me is what Alcoholics Anonymous is all about. It's how to establish and maintain and become grateful for and to enjoy a spiritual condition. And when I came in here, I would have thought that that was the silliest thing that a grown human male could stand up and say. How, how ridiculous. How can that begin to change your life or produce the answer? What you need is to go out and really force your way in life and become successful. No. What I really need is a spiritual condition. And the first and primary thing that will re remove me and separate me from my spiritual condition is one drink or one tranquilizer for any reason, and I don't care who the doctor is that prescribes it. Or one sedating or tranquilizing pill. Anything that will put me to sleep or wake me up will really put me to sleep. Because anything that works on the central nervous system of an alcoholic is just dynamite. There is no easier, softer way than just cold, pure sobriety. But there are lots of things besides booze that will do it. 
And the book tells us about these things. All of this is in the book for me. Anger and resentment. Man, the, the enemy of sobriety. Terrible enemy of the alcoholic and Al-Anon. All of us as a human being. Why? Because there is no way to continue to maintain a spiritual condition. Because these things are not like a spiritual condition. They are unlike it. They're the opposite of it. If I am in a depression, I am not in a spiritual condition, and I just may as well face it. I have stepped out of my sanity. There is no substitute for sanity. There is no substitute for feeling good. And when I'm feeling bad, that means I'm not feeling good. And if I'm not feeling good, I am not in my normal and natural state of mind that I always believed that I was in. I believed that I felt bad for so long that I came to believe that that's the way that was part of the deal. And you come in AA, and we believe that that's part of the deal. Well, don't get me wrong. Yes, we continue to feel poorly sometimes. Some days we're not doing so good. And that's all right as long as I remember something. That that's no more natural than being drunk was natural. That's no more acceptable over the long term. That that's what I'm trying to escape from. That there's a way out of that. There's a way to not have to be that way. And if you don't believe it, read the book again. And incidentally, we haven't read the book this year. Let's read it. Let's start the year with it. And read it with somebody, you know, if you have somebody to read it with. Read it a couple of pages a day or a chapter a day. Could you read, read, read that book again? And it's absolutely startling. How it will be different when we read it again because we are different. And our ideas and our values will have shifted and changed. So I was in AA and going to meetings and one night, this was before I really began to see it, some of us left the meeting early to go out and play poker. And I, the fellow that I was riding with was a, I didn't like him so pretty good anyhow. And on the way out, I was talking. I was just talking to him in my natural tone of voice and and uh, talking about things and people like I was prone to do. And he turned to me and said the worst thing that one person could say to another. And I wanted to hit him. He said, you're absolutely the most resentful human being that I have ever seen in my life. Can you imagine one member of Alcoholics Anonymous saying that to another member of Alcoholics Anonymous five minutes after they left the meeting. <laughs> and he was right. And a couple of weeks later, I was drunk. Because I thought that the whole deal was that I didn't take a drink. Then on July the 10th, this was in June, on July the 10th, 1953, I was back, and I haven't had a drink since, because I've been willing to go to any lengths, and I still am, to be different. Not just different from how I was when I drank, but to be different from how I was when I got here on Friday, and that was pretty good for me. Just real good. I felt good inside. But I'm different. I came here to be different. I didn't come here to be entertained, although I had been entertained. But I came here so that when I left, I'd be different. Because I want to change. I want to grow along spiritual lines. And instead of being Mickey Mouse, 
It's turned out to be the greatest adventure in my whole life to discover who I am. Who am I? What is my destiny? Who is God? What is my relationship with God? And what is my real relationship with my fellow man? Because, you know, they will be strangely synonymous. I can't have one kind of a relationship with you and another kind of a relationship with God or vice versa. Who was it that read that? Flee. When we really find one, God and our fellow man and ourselves, we'll find all three, but we won't find two and leave the other one out. I don't believe it. But this discovery of self is one of the most beautiful things because God never made a mistake. <clears throat> You're not a mistake. You have only believed that you were and perhaps still do. And we can get some of the covering back and begin to discover what really lies underneath. We find out why we suffered so much when we drank and when the others drank. You know why we suffered? Because we really weren't that way at all. And we couldn't stand being something that we were not. Three or four years ago, I saw a little thing in the newspaper about a, an art dealer in, in Brussels who was at an auction, and he bought a painting for the equivalent of 35 American dollars. It was a pretty good painting, and he knew he could sell it for about a hundred and a half. He got it back to his shop, and he was cleaning it up for resale, and he noticed that down in one corner that there was a little chip of paint, and underneath there was some vivid color, just a little place. And he got to playing with it, and a little more paint flicked off. He didn't mean for it to. You know, just accidental. But there was more color than he had imagined. And he took it to some experts. And they began very slowly and carefully to peel back the outer layers. And underneath they discovered an original painting by one of the great masters that was worth a quarter of a million dollars. Is that not what we're doing? beginning to very slowly, sometimes too slowly. It says, with all the earnestness at our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. Peel back these outer layers that God didn't paint them there, but you and I did, and we allowed others. We have handed other people brushes and paint and said, you know, put it on thick. And the thicker the better. Now it's a matter of uncovering and discovering what was there all the time. And when we find it, we'll find that it's vivid and bright and beautiful. Down deep inside yourself, you're beautiful and loving. And, you, and we have not really given ourselves the freedom to be this way. We give ourselves a lot of freedoms to be vulgar and profane, to shock people, even sober. We say, that's my freedom, that's my right. That's not a freedom. The good can become the enemy of the better, really. There is a better freedom. There is a larger freedom because there is a real self that lies within us all. And that's what the program is about. It's not about creating anything because it's already there. It's about clearing away the wreckage, letting go of the old ideas, 
It's about beginning to experience what you, what your heart knew existed when you were a little child and coming back to that state of consciousness. Intuitive, we have known. Intuitively, we have known how life could be. And we have suffered because we missed it. It passed us by. And now we have found a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join and become born again. And this book talks about the rebirth. But I can't be reborn if I hang on to old ideas, concepts. The surrendering and the continued surrendering that so essential and so beautiful. To become willing to be what I already was. Isn't that ridiculous? When you stop and see how hard it is. How I had to go through hell. And how I still have to remind myself again and again that it's essential for me to become willing to be what was God's plan for me all the time. I can't do it by myself. I can't do it just with people who are just staying sober. I need people who are reaching out and who are in search of the miraculous. And there is a miraculous, except the miraculous is the most natural experience of your life and mine. We're, we're, we're part of something big that's trying to happen to us. And I can postpone it in AA just like I put it off out there. You know, I, I kept putting it off. And I can, I can accept the larger view, the larger grasp, and I can let it happen in a larger way. A couple of years ago, I was on my way in business from Washington to Philadelphia. And I parked my car in Washington and took the train. I like to ride a train, incidentally. And I was practicing the most important words that I've ever heard in my life. They happened right after I got sober and really got sober in AA. I picked up a book by Emmett Fox called The Sermon on the Mount that was the original textbook of AA before the big book. And in it I read, Practice the Presence of God. Practice the Presence of God. Now, that doesn't seem like too much, except that, see, all my life I had been practicing the presence of fear. I've been practicing the presence of hatred, animosity, resentment. I practiced all sorts of negative emotions. I practiced them. I could get the juices flowing, man. I could get them going real good. I could practice hating somebody that wasn't even in sight. Now imagine how I felt when I saw them. <laughs> I was an expert at practicing all of these things, and then I found out I had to stop practicing them and start practicing the presence of God. So I've had some experience with it. But on this day, I was on my way, on the train, and I thought, Gee, I'll practice the presence of God. And, uh, you know, I'd sit there and I'd look at people and I'd practice the presence of God and thought of my group back home and I'd practice the presence of God. And God and I became real close. Closer. You know, we've got a step that says continued through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with God. This tells me that I can have a more conscious or an unconscious contact with God, that God is available. And I've had this experience, and I continue to have this experience of a conscious contact with God. But I've got to practice it. 
You know, he's always, he's, he practices it all the time with me. He's always conscious of me. I found that out. And he always loves me. And, and I'm the one that keeps leaving home. You know, I'm the prodigal that keeps running out in the street and in front of the traffic. But God is always conscious of me. So the missing ingredient is my consciousness. So I was practicing being conscious of God as, as I am, as I experience God. And man, it was good and it was a remarkable how that I was at the right place at the right time when I got to Philadelphia. And the business that I thought was going to take all day took about an hour and a half or two hours. And I was on an early train and I was able to get to catch a train back and I was in Baltimore in the first part of the afternoon. And I was able to, I was going to conduct some business in Baltimore. And I was practicing the presence of God and being grateful for how well things had worked out. I had not worked them out. I hadn't worked out one cotton-picking thing in 17 and a half years. But I promise you that I've gotten out of the way and a lot of things had worked out by this power. But I walked into the men's room in the station in Baltimore and I was standing there washing my hands and I heard this voice behind me and it was saying, please, mister, just a dime, just a dime. And I was standing there practicing the presence of God and feeling God with me. And as I turned around, I felt this presence, not in words exactly, but say, let me show you something. Now, these are my words. This is my description, but this was an experience. It said, let me show you something. Let me show you how much I love you and all of you. Now, this was happening this quickly. And the voice was saying again, please, mister, just a dime. And as I turned around, I saw a drunk. I saw the face of a drunk. And he looked like he was about 50, but he looked like he was about 60. And his face was scarred, and he was just about to go down from weakness, not from drunkenness. He was a skid row type guy. And yet at the moment that I saw him, I also saw him as he was a, as a child. If you can visualize this, I saw him as he was before he became this way. And at the same time, I saw him, and yet I did not see him. Something saw him for me. As he might have been, if he had not become this way. And at the same time, I saw him as he could be, if he could accept the way out, which was standing right there loving him. The way out was loving him. But this man was saying, please, mister, just a dime. But this presence said, let me show you something. And suddenly I felt so much love for this drunk flowing through me. It wasn't me loving. It was God loving. That I couldn't stand it. I, I, I couldn't stand it. I wanted to say, turn it off. Stop. I can't stand it. It was too much. And, and the tears were running down my cheeks. I'm one of those great criers. And God was loving him. And the answer was there. It is always there. God is always speaking to us. Right now in your problem and in your situation. God knows. All we have to do is find him. Reach out. But instead of reaching out in his ignorance, just like my ignorance, he said, please, just a dime. 
I put my hands in my pocket and all the money I could find I gave him. See, I couldn't help it. And I reached back for my briefcase and he ran out the door and I went out and tried to find him and I couldn't and he was gone. But the, the love, the intense love that God has for us was one more time my experience. And I could see, see so often I don't know how much God loves me. But when I see God loving you, I know that he loves me exactly the same. He loves us all as though none of the rest of us existed. All of us have all of God's love. And all of us have God's attention. But he doesn't have ours. That's the problem. The book says that we're lack of power. That was the dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live, and it had to be a power greater than ourselves. So it's to be one with that power. It's to find, to rediscover that power and to give up the things and the ideas and the habits and the attitudes, those beautiful attitudes of suffering that separate us from the power and the language of the problem and begin to learn the language of the solution. That's the way out. And I can have my choice, but I can't have both. And I choose the way out because I'm tired. I'm tired not from a day, but from a lifetime of being sick and afraid. I'm tired of imposing it on people. When really what we were created for was to be little lights that shine in the darkness to carry the message that we don't have to be that way, but we can't give anything away that we don't have. And when I see this shining in you, and I've seen it shining this weekend in you, and that's why you're here. See, it becomes my light and my lamp. But it is, is it you or is it the power greater than yourself reflecting itself? It's sanity. We're being restored to its Sanity. And it's beautiful. And you're beautiful. And Alcoholics Anonymous is beautiful. And it's all about the new man. And in closing, let me share with you something about Peter Marshall. It's about the new man. The new sober man. If he's drunk, he can't be a new man. And Peter Marshall wrote, I know, Father, that I must come to thee just as I am. But I also know that I dare not go away just as I came. Often, I've known failure. Failure in the moral realm, failure in ethics, failure in my attitudes, and failure in my disposition. Now, I've confessed all these defeats to thee, and thou hast graciously forgiven me. And yet I know that merely to forgive me will not suffice. For unless I am changed, I shall do these same things again. At last I know, God, that only thou canst correct that within me which makes me do wrong. Where I am blind, thou must give me sight. Where I fail to heed thy voice, thou wilt have to do something about my deafness. Even where I deliberately choose to do what I know is wrong, thou wilt have to do something about my will. So, God, 
I acknowledge my total dependence upon thee. Make me over into the person thou dost want me to be, that I may yet find that destiny for which thou didst give me birth. And for the help of my brothers and sisters in AA and Helena, who have been so plenteous in their love and mercy, I give thee my gratitude. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.